Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. Good evening, everyone. Uh, just check and make sure I've got the mic on right. Can you hear me in the back? Yeah, great. So out of respect for my teachers and for all those who've walked this path before us, I'd just like to start with a short chant. <clears throat> just invite you to just listen, let the words move through you. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami. I feel a little bit like I'm on a first date. <laughs> there's, um, <clears throat> there's always something very special to me about these these talks in the evening on retreat. Um, in particular, on a day like today, it's cold outside, a little bit wet, and everyone comes together. Um, and I think that there's there's something more to that than just kind of my personal preferences and wanting to be in a big cuddly family together. Um, I I think that there's sort of a a tribal memory that we all carry of being together in a group and uh, and gathering in the evenings and telling stories. Um, and connecting with with what's meaningful for us in life, with what's sacred, with where we come from. And uh, I think it's one of the great tragedies of um, the times we live in today. There's this epidemic of disconnection (coughs) uh, from the sense of community, connection, tribe, and, and... a reflection of that is is our sense of disconnection from from embodiment. We actually lose connection with what it's like to live here in this body. Many of the activities that we have to engage in to survive today kind of take us out of the body, all of the screens, right, that we interface with every day, sort of out there, moving forward through vision. The tyranny of the calendar, right, you know, can you take a walk tomorrow? I don't know. Let me check. <laughs> right? <laughs> Be there at 10. Where's 10 o'clock? You know, the body doesn't know 10 o'clock. So we, we have to then sort of force ourselves into these routines and these concepts that are not natural to our bodies. And the messages, the messages that we get every day uh, in our culture. Uh, 18 years of schooling the message, the subtext is 
um, in order to, right? I learned this very young. I can remember walking back from uh, high school, probably my freshman year or something. I had a very nice long walk to school. And I remember one day feeling like, where am I going? Actually, it started even earlier. When I was when I was a little boy, I was maybe eight or younger. I remember saying to my mom, waking up one day and saying, why can't I get on with it already? If the whole point is to go to college, get a job and get married, why do I have to do all this stuff? Right? Like eight years old. <laughs> I got the message, you know, like get there, do this in order to. And then in high school, it was the same thing, you know, in order to, in order to. I was, uh, I was in an airport uh, recently and um, I saw one of these advertisements that, that has a sort of an unintended dharmic message, <laughs> right? Like the classic one is on the movie theater marquee, help wanted, inquire within, right? <laughs> so uh, it was an advertisement. It was one of these little power stations where everybody charges their, their device. And um, I won't say the name of the company. It said the name of the company. And then it said that was sort of sponsoring this power station. And it said, you know, Acme. So you can be anywhere you want, but here. <laughs> right? This is, this is the epitome of our culture. Right? The person who designed that had no idea, right? They were just thinking, oh, you don't have to charge your thing. You can go where you want. But so you can be anywhere you want, but here. And so much of this practice is, is the opposite, right? It's arriving. It's coming back here. I think that uh, the crisis we're facing on our planet today is a reflection of our own individual disconnection from our bodies. You know, how can we really hope to wisely respond to what's happening and what we're facing as a species, as a civilization, um, if we can't learn how to live within our own body in a healthy, harmonious, balanced way, right? They're reflections of each other. So one of my first teachers in India used to say all the time, he would chide me very lovingly and he would say, you are living mostly in the world of thought. Dhamma is about experience living in the world of experience. And Rebecca was talking about this last night, dropping into this sense-based reality. One of the primary sense doors that the Buddha recommended for this is the body. And I've found this very, very helpful in my own life, in my own practice. It's been a primary aspect of my practice. And so what I'd like to talk about tonight is the journey to embodiment how we get there, what happens, and where it takes us. So this is from Joanna Macy. We have received an inestimable gift to be alive in this beautiful, self-organizing universe, to participate in the dance of life with senses to perceive it, lungs that breathe it, organs that draw nourishment from it. It is a wonder beyond words. It is an extraordinary privilege to be accorded a human life with self-reflexive consciousness that brings awareness of our own actions and the ability to make choices. It lets us choose to take part in the healing of our world. 
So what is this body, this inestimable gift? We live in a time where science has discovered so many amazing things about this body. I won't go into details, but I'm sure many of you have heard some of the statistics that there are more non-human cells in the body than human cells. Our bodies, something like 60% water. Our brains and our muscles are 75% water, right? This one, my mom told me this one. So each one of us, when a woman is, um, is conceived and, and the fetus grows, all of the eggs that she will ever have for her life are formed in utero. So you know what that means? Each one of us, the egg that created us was inside our maternal grandmother. Right? These, these bodies are amazing, just, just on the physical level, right? You just begin to investigate and see what opens up. This is what the Buddha said. In this very fathom-length body, with its sense impressions, its thoughts and ideas, is the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the way leading to the cessation of the world. Right, so this is the structure for the Four Noble Truths, suffering, the origin of suffering, the end of suffering, and the way leading to the suffering. He's pointing to it and saying the whole path is here. And not just the whole path, but the world. The whole experience of this universe happens here. When you look at the stars, seeing happens here. The light from the stars touches here. When you think of the Atlantic Ocean, the thought happens here, right? The food we eat is not out there. When you touch it, it's here. So there's something very profound to be uh, discovered in this body. So how do we view it? How do we relate to it? The unexamined habitual view uh, often is as a vehicle right? Uh, as long as the body's functioning, as long as we are um, what um, some refer to as the temporarily abled, the body goes where we want it to go, it does what we want it to do, it'll digest the food that our tongue wants to taste, sometimes more or less. It's almost our slave, it does what we, what we want, it follows our wishes, and we're sort of up here somewhere in the control tower, barking orders and directing the show, right? Until every now and then, something down below calls our attention. An ache, we get sick and we actually have to slow down and stop doing what we want. A minor surgery. And then you get over it and you go back to just driving, 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 making it do what you want to do. And for so many years, depending on your karma and your health, it does what you want. The body is a concept. When the body is a concept, we can become worried about the future, about our health, we become obsessed with exercise, with diet, relating to the body as an idea. Or what others say to us begin to affect us, you know? Ever had that experience where someone says, wow, you look really tired, and all of a sudden you start to feel tired. Or someone says, you look really great, and, and you know, things kind of pick up a little bit. 
relating to the body as a concept. Or we relate to the body as an image, right? As a picture. I think all of us know this. And, and what's that picture? Often it's formed by our culture, some sort of ideal. What's the result of that, right? Comparing, shame. We start to feel uncomfortable with the shape of our body, how thick it is or how thin it is, how firm or flabby, how smooth or wrinkly. Insane, right? When you look at it, go out in the woods and spend some time with the trees. They don't feel ashamed of how thick their branches are or how deep the grooves in their bark are, right? And uh, each of us in various ways suffers from the legacy of sexism and racism that we've all internalized that mediates how we experience our bodies. As a man, I've suffered immensely from um, how early in my life the objectification of the female body was imprinted on my consciousness through the loss of connection with my own body. And I've had to work very, very hard to reclaim that sense of intimacy, of direct connection, of being able to inhabit fully this body on its own terms, Now, all of these ways of perceiving and relating to the body as uh, our slave, as a vehicle, as a concept, as an image, um, as an object, right? This is, this is the other one that I was just referring to, is the great tragedy of our culture that not only do we objectify others, but in that process, we ourselves become an object. And we relate to ourselves as an object rather than as a subject. And all of these rest upon a fundamental fallacy of taking the body as a self, of identifying with it, of believing the perception that this is me, this is mine, this is who or what I am. And this is the root of so much, if not all, of our suffering. And it's a primary hindrance in practice it's what's called sakayaditi in Pali, which is self-view. It's why it's the first of the ten fetters to go, to be uprooted with stream entry. We see clearly the, through the illusion of there being an identity of a personality, of a self. And whenever we practice with that assumption unseen, the practice is a little bit off. So again, my first teacher used to say, and I think he was quoting the suttas, I think I came across it somewhere. He said, you know, practicing with attachments and identification to the body is like sitting in a rowboat, paddling, paddling to try to get to the other shore and not realizing that the boat is still moored to the dock. So how do we unmoor our boat? to understand and relate to our body properly, first we have to actually be here. We have to know it directly to examine it. Are we just reacting to pain? Are we just using it to seek pleasure? Or are we cultivating 
Are we relating to it as a contemplative, using it, uh, using its direct experience to develop the heart? So I hope that some of the things I offer in this talk can uh, help us to unmoor that boat a little bit. <clears throat> so the, this process of actually entering our body uh, begins with a sense of respect for the body, a sense of openness and curiosity, and a willingness to actually rediscover what this body is beyond our thoughts, our ideas, our past experiences. I, I remember the f- one of the first insights I had on retreat of this difference that Rebecca explained so eloquently last night between con- the concept, the thought-based reality and the sense-based reality. I was standing here on the uh, front steps outside the foyer and um, just one of those moments of just standing and just receiving and the wind came. And there was a thought, so, oh, the wind. And then the mind saw the thought and recognized what was actually happening. There was hearing, there was pressure, there was coolness. And in that moment I understood there is no wind. Wind is a thought, right? It's an idea. It refers to an experience, but it is not that experience. So this is the entry into the realm of the body. And and as we enter this realm, our experience of what we call the body can change in practice. I'm sure many of you have uh, sort of touched into different layers of this, where we move from the body as an object or a concept or an image to one we experience as a form from the inside with defined boundaries or as a mass of sensations that are changing more refined experiences can arise. The body as sort of flows and flushes of energy. Even, even the boundaries starting to dissolve, and the body breaking up. So as we begin to develop a relationship with our body, we shift from one of the body as an object, as a vehicle, to the body as a friend, as a teacher. We recognize the need to care for it, to be in loving relationship with it. That rather than it being um, our thing to use as much as we want, it's actually a, a precious, precious gift and a vehicle for awakening that we have a responsibility to steward, sort of a wise stewardship of this body. This begins on the outer level with things like diet and exercise and, you know, just attending to, caring for the body, and then it it moves into the inner life with how we listen to the body. Anyone with chronic illness or pain knows that this very quickly becomes forced upon you. You don't have a choice. You have to listen to the body. Don't wait. Don't wait. The more embodied we become, we, become, we, we develop a tremendous resource. It becomes a ground for all of our experience, for difficult emotions, for intense experiences. The Buddha framed it this way. He, in, the, in the central teaching on dukkha, he goes through everything that's, that's dukkha in this life. 
And then he says, in brief, I'll sum it up. He says, the five aggregates of clinging. And the five aggregates are form, feeling or Vedana, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness. So the first is, the, is form, the realm of embodiments, and then the other four are the realm of the mind. And he said these five components, when we relate to them with clinging, with upadana, with identification, they are suffering. Elsewhere in the suttas, there's this phrase that says, these five aggregates, when properly held and related to, become the basis for a pleasant abiding in the here and the now. It's not that there's something inherent in them that's dukkha, it's the relationship with them. And when that relationship is appropriate, they become this, this um, possibility for a pleasant abiding. One of the other gifts of developing a relationship with the body as we begin to listen more to the body, we develop a certain attunement, a certain sensitivity to the tone of things, to the ethical tone of things, to how things feel. And this is when sila moves, ethical conduct, virtue, moves from an idea to an embodied experience. Because the mind can justify and rationalize anything. It can play both sides back and forth indefinitely. But when we've listened deeply to our actions and the results of them, when we've tracked it in the body, we start to develop a, a, a very reliable barometer for what's skillful and unskillful. And then the body actually won't go there. It's like the body doesn't let us do something unskillful because it knows, it feels, ah, oh, I remember this. This didn't, <laughs> this didn't work out so well last time. But it takes that listening, it takes that dropping in and really feeling, knowing experience from the inside. So this is what the Buddha said about this. It's from the Anguttara Nikaya. Just as someone who mentally encompasses the great ocean will also include in that all of the rivers that run into the ocean, so whosoever develops mindfulness directed to the body will include in that all the skillful states that support supreme understanding. That's a pretty powerful statement. He who develops mindfulness of the body will encompass, will include all of the skillful, wholesome states that lead to supreme understanding. So it becomes a reference point and a foundation for all other wholesome qualities and can even serve in the same regard for all practices. So what happens when we enter the body, when we actually start to drop into this layer of lived experience? As all of us know, I'm sure, we've each been here at least a week, some of you much longer. When you start to wake up, often the first things we encounter aren't so nice, right? What comes up is the cobwebs and things we haven't attended to for so long. So the body remembers. It can carry our history, as Venerable Bhante Buddha said, the issues are in the tissues, right? It can be painful and joyful memories, unresolved issues, incomplete responses, unfelt emotions, all held and stored in the body. And with practice, we begin to create the space for these experiences to come up into consciousness, to be held, to be felt, to be known, 
and to be released. My journey with this has, has been an intense one. I've dealt with all kinds of illness in the body since I was 25. I'm 37 now, so that's, that's a good minute. And um, I remember the first time I noticed that there was something going on in my body, not even health-wise. I was a freshman in college. And I was standing in the dormitory, um, in the bathroom of our suite in the dormitory, um, coming in or out of the shower and a towel around me and I was, I was breathing and I noticed this flutter in my abdomen. I hadn't started meditating yet, but I felt this tremble connected to one of my family members who was mentally ill. It was a lot of chaos and emotion growing up. And I, I felt something stir and tremble and I thought, whoa, there's something going on there, you know? And um, as I've done various movement practices in my life, beginning with doing, doing yoga in India when I first started to meditate, oh, it was brutal. I was so frustrated. I, I, I was on the verge of tears every time I, we would do yoga because it was so uncomfortable and I didn't know how to move my body and I felt like I was doing it wrong and I couldn't do it. This has gone on for years. <laughs> About five or six years ago, I was uh, training in a um, Qigong class with one of my teachers in Oakland, California, and I was having the same experience of just feeling overwhelmed. He was sort of, he's very, very advanced, and he's sort of saying things to do and things to feel that I had no idea how to access. And I I just kind of, I sort of threw up a little verbally, (laughs) just kind of like, you know, I don't even know where to begin how to do any of these things you're talking about. Is this even possible? And he looked at me and he said very, very sternly, he said, when you go to China to train, they don't ask you how you like to learn. They ask if you can eat bitter. Can you eat bitter? We don't like bitter, right? We like sweet, salty, maybe sour don't like bitter. Can you eat bitter, right? Can you bear with the frustration, the discomfort, the not quite feeling at ease of really, really learning something new, of entering a space that we don't know, that we don't quite feel comfortable in? This is what's required to be embodied often. And in the practice, we, we begin sort of sweeping, scanning the attention through the body sometimes. We can be massaging the body, working with the body. And as we all know, difficult things can arise. Memories, thoughts, emotions, sensations that are hard, that are painful, that are disturbing. Sometimes we can simply notice them. We notice they're arising we're with it and it fades or we see through it or it changes and that's great, it's enough. When that happens, we don't need to go digging for something else. Just trusting the unfolding of experience. But sometimes phenomena have enough energy or momentum that they hang around for a little while, right? Have you noticed that? <laughs> Certain things, you, you, you're aware of them and they just kind of linger. So what do we do? How do we work with that? in the body. So um, if, I, if I had a PowerPoint or a big whiteboard, I would make a little flow chart here. 
but there's sort of like the first fundamental choice point is checking in when, when, when something difficult arises, when something challenging arises, something uncomfortable, the first point is just checking in on like, how am I doing with this? Can I handle this? I used to, I used to, um, I used to go canoeing a lot when I was growing up in the summers in, here in the Northeast and in Canada. And um, you get to a set of rapids in a canoe, you pull over to the side of the river, if you don't know the river, and you check it out. So sometimes you get out of the boat and you actually walk down the shore and you look and you see, you try to read the water. Are there big stones? Is there a waterfall up ahead? Like, where's this going? Getting a sense of, can I run this, right? Can I, can I go through this? And sometimes the answer is no. And you take all your gear out, you put the canoe on your shoulders and you portage around it. So that's the first question we have to answer. And this doesn't need to be some big, long intellectual process. It's just getting a feel for like, how heavy are these rapids? You know, can I go through this? Is there enough balance in the mind? And that's really what we're checking. How much mindfulness and equanimity is present? Is there enough to meet this skillfully? Because if there isn't, it's not going to be helpful to just come from some idea that we need to keep staying with it and noting it and noting it. If there's not balance in the mind, we're just going to be reconditioning aversion and confusion and spinning in it. So that's sort of the first choice point. Read the rapids and get a sense. Okay. Now let's assume it's a yes. We'll get to the no next. Let's assume it's a yes. It's like, all right, yeah, I think I can do this. Then the next is to get a sense of how we're relating. It's just checking out, is there resistance? Um, is there tightening? Is there aversion? And just seeing if we can relax some of those grosser layers. Can we bring some level of acceptance to it? Okay, this is what's happening. Can I just be with this? And we try to set aside any more subtler agendas of trying to fix it or trying to understand it or trying to transform it, right? So can I run the rapids? Yes. How am I relating to this? You know, like, am I trying to get rid of it or is there acceptance? Am I really meeting this? Am I really open to it? We need to come from acceptance otherwise and, and with and some recognition of the fact that whatever is arising is just a natural phenomena. It's not mine, it's not me. To whatever degree intellectually that we can have that frame so that we're approaching it not from a sense of needing to change it or make it different or feeling afraid that it means something about us but that we can actually investigate it, that we can actually enter it. And then once there's some acceptance, as much as we can find in the moment, then it's a process of attending, attending very wisely, very deeply, being with, dropping in. And this is, this is where the body becomes a very, very useful tool, a, a primary ground to work. And there's a whole range of responses and tools that we can work with. And the first is disengaging from the story whatever's happening, if it's an emotion or a memory, even if it's a sensation, you know, your knee is burning and twisting. You don't think you're going to break something, but you start having some, you know, big story about what it means or what's going to happen. So disengage from the story. Whatever's arising, if it's got this kind of energy to it, it's not going to resolve through thinking. If we could have figured it out through thought, we would have. We would have figured it out long ago. 
thought doesn't do that. Thought doesn't reach a conclusion. It just keeps going, spinning. It resolves on a more intuitive level, on a more direct level, often in the body. Repetitive thoughts, emotions, obsessions, they ride on a wave of energy in the body, and that's where it needs to be resolved. So drop down into the body and feel. How do you know you're anxious? What's the actual felt experience? What's loneliness like if you take the word away? Where do you feel it? How deep in the body is it? How wide is it? Does it have texture? Does it have temperature? Is it moving? Can you relax your attention around it? Can you soften and widen a little bit and just hold it patiently like you were sitting with a dear friend? Just being with it, receiving it, feeling it, knowing it, studying it from the inside. This kind of receptive, patient, um, intimate attention is, is what the body's calling for. It's longing for it from all of us. And when we can offer it, things start to unravel, disentangle, open. When they're particularly sticky uh, emotions or memories or thoughts, keep pulling the attention out of the story. Keep disengaging from the ideas, the impressions, the perceptions, and coming back into the direct experience. Coming back into the body, feeling it sensing it, generating space around it, softening. Now what happens if we get a no? You come to a set of rapids, you get out of the canoe, there's a waterfall on the other side of that thing, or there's some really big rocks that could swamp the boat, okay? We all have places like this. I call this extreme vipassana, okay? when you come to a set of rapids that you're not sure if you can handle. So all of us, just from being human and living in the society and culture and time we live in, have places inside that have this kind of um, magnetic pull to them. It's like a whirlpool that sucks us in and we can't get out. This might be an actual past trauma. This could be just intense memories, events, It may be a particularly intense sensation in the body. I went through a period in my practice where I had this sort of contraction and pressure in my chest whenever I sat. You know, it was very intense. And sometimes still when I sit, I get these these waves of like, it's awful. (laughs) It's this like tearing, aching in the muscles. It's not, it's not a physical experience. It's almost energetic. And it's, there's just nothing that can be done, you know? Um, so the key with these, the thing to look for when you read the rapids is any sense of overwhelm or helplessness. Like it's going to be too much. That you're going to lose balance. When we lose balance that's not the time to stay with the experience. If your child is wandering into traffic, you grab her and you pull her out of the street, 
right? You don't contemplate feelings and sensations and seeing. So when we lose balance, we have to take care. We have to respond immediately, not with panic, but just like wisely. It's like, no, I'm not going to run this set of rapids right now. Okay, so with these kinds of intense or magnetic phenomena that arise where there's the risk of getting pulled in and losing balance, losing mindfulness and equanimity, there's a very fundamental principle in understanding how to work with these places. And the way, the way my teacher frames it, he says, don't go in if you can't come out. Don't go in if you can't come out. And we see... We see this just in the instru- in the ba- very basic instructions for developing uh, concentration, samadhi. When thoughts, sensations arise, what's the instruction? Come back to the object. We don't go into them, right? So we're, we're strengthening an ability to choose where we place our attention, which is this is key for working with these places. We don't go in if we can't get out because the likelihood is we'll lose mindfulness and equanimity and get swamped. So we need a reference point. We need a counterpoint, something outside of that vortex, of that sort of magnetic thing, whether it's an emotion, a memory, a sensation, a whole storm, with which to regard it, from which to meet it. So the first step with these is to recognize that and to rebalance. To recognize that this is one of those places where it might be wise to have, you know, my foot on steady ground as I meet this. And so the response there can be a skillful redirecting of the attention. We're looking for a counterpoint, something neutral or pleasant in feeling tone. This could be sound is often a good one. So you've got, so some storm comes up, some memory, some thing that happened with your mother or some pattern in the body or some doubt that gets you every time and you notice it, come out, come out first, come to sound, feel your hands or feet. So it's the, the movement of the attention is out. So we're moving to the periphery, we're moving out because the tendency is to go in, is to get sucked in. Open the eyes. Connect with seeing. Look around. All of these have a way of rebalancing, of establishing a reference point. And what we're doing here, and we do this um, consistently, patiently, we work with this, just this ability to step out and we're strengthening a muscle here in relation to this particular phenomena. We're strengthening the ability to choose where we put our attention so that we have enough equanimity and mindfulness to actually meet it. Okay? When difficulties arise, the primary thing is to stay engaged, but that doesn't always mean staying there. Right? When you're in relationship and difficulties arise, whether you're married or in robes, you don't just cut out. You don't just leave. You stay engaged, right? And, but sometimes that engagement means taking a break. That engagement might mean saying, I really don't think that what I say next is gonna be useful, so I'm gonna leave, and we'll have this conversation later, 
And we'll have this conversation later. That's the key, is that we're, we're coming back. We're leaving in order to come back. Okay? So all of us are in a committed relationship with this practice, at least for six weeks, if not for your life. And that means that you're committed to engaging, that we're committed to staying engaged with life, with our experience. But that doesn't mean that we always have to stay right with what's happening. If it's too much, what's actually needed and skillful is to step out and rebalance so that we can come back. Okay, that's the key. And you can say that in the mind. You know, you can say, this is really hard right now. I'm going to take a step out. I'm going to take a break from this so that I can rebalance, so that eventually I can come back, whenever that may be, whenever the conditions are right and there's enough resource to meet that experience. Sending that kind of message does something to the psyche. Our system knows that we're not going to abandon it, that we're not, gonna, that we're not checking out, that, that, the, that the deeper intention is actually to, to be in contact, but that we're taking care of ourselves enough so that we can come back into wise relationship with what's happening. So don't go in if you can't come out. Get a reference point, a counterpoint, hands, feet, sound, seeing. Strengthen the ability to come out. To, to choose where your attention goes. And in that process, we start to develop a relationship with this emotion or memory, so a relationship of friendliness, of tenderness, of like, oh, there you are again. Mm, I'll spend a little time with you now. Maybe not now. We have a relationship with it. As we begin to be able to choose whether or not to go into it, what happens is it stops being so frightening because we don't, have to stay, we don't have to be with it. We have another place to go with our attention. And then we start to have some confidence. We have confidence that we can actually meet it and come back out and meet it and come back out. Because we've strengthened that muscle, we've strengthened that ability to say like, mm, let's just check in for a little bit somewhere else first. Now once that confidence is established, once we have that ability to go in and out, then, then it's like uh, if you've ever, and again, this is going to vary depending on each of us and what we're working with. Sometimes it's just enough to come out a little bit and then you can stay with it and, you know, in a spacious way, in a curious way, and that's enough. With other things that are, that are more intense or deeper, sometimes it can be a very, it can be a slower process, a more patient process. And in that case, it's like, uh, it's like reintroducing a food that you've been allergic to, that you haven't eaten for a while. You don't start with a full meal, right? You start with like half a teaspoon, and then you see how you do. <laughs> and then the next day or the next sitting, you take another half a teaspoon, and you work up to it. So this is um, homeopathic medicine, which I, I personally have not had much success with, but I, I, really, I really like the, the philosophy behind it. Um, this, is, this is from a book on homeopathy. Um, a system which obeys the laws of complexity does not always behave in a linear manner. Now listen to this next part. This is what's important. In the behavior of complex systems, right, the quality of information is more important than the quantity. In the behavior of complex systems, the quality of information is more important than the quantity. 
That's why going in for just a little dose and coming back out can have far-reaching and profound effects. That's why one instant of an insight can transform this whole mind-body system. Because in a complex living system, like the human organism, it's the quality of information that's more important than the quantity. This is why all of the instructions keep encouraging us, just be with this moment, because this moment is where we awaken. It's here that that shift, that that understanding happens. We, we, really, we really develop the, the trust of that, the trust of this process that, that the body has its own intelligence. And that when there's enough balance, when there's enough awareness, when we're in that space, it knows what to do intuitively. So we take these homeopathic doses of the difficult experience, the sensation, the emotion, find the edges. Oh, if it's, it's in the body somewhere, where are the edges? And then go outside the edge, hang out outside the edge, and then just come up to the edge and touch the edge a little bit, and then come back out of the edge. When we were kids, we used to fall down and skin our knee or our elbow a lot, right? If anyone played outside. When you got a big scrape, how does it heal? The scab forms, right? Scab forms. And then what part of the scab starts to heal first? It's the outside, right? It's the edge. It doesn't heal in the, in the middle. It starts at the edge. And then the edge, and then, and then it gets smaller and smaller. And the edge keeps changing. So don't go into the heart of a difficult experience. Work at the edge. Stay at the edge. That's where the healing happens. You only enter the heart when the heart is the edge. When you've worked the edges enough that you're in the heart because that's where the edge is. And, and, and as, our, as our system learns that we're not going to force it, that we're not going to ram it in there and try to figure it out and, and force it to be with this thing, that we're going to be gentle, that we're going to listen to it, that we're going to respond to what it needs and what it's telling us, that we're going to stay balanced, that we're going to take this in manageable you know, doses. It relaxes and, as I was saying, a greater intelligence takes over. The process, the unfolding of the Dhamma happens on its own. Now, with all of these tools that I've been mentioning of how to work with experience, how to enter the body, how to soften, how to really drop in and sense, okay, what's really happening here? Uh, beyond the words, you know, what, what is doubt? How do I experience it? What's actually happening? Where is it? It's not an end in itself. We can get caught in a belief that we're doing this and that we have to work through every single experience and emotion and sensation ad infinitum to finally be free. And that's not the case. It's not a linear process. The ultimate aim is for release, is for freedom. And that that comes through letting go. 
letting go of the attachment of the identification with this body. And as Brian was saying the other night, this process of, of living the understanding of impermanence is like learning to ride a bike. That it's something that happens intuitively. So we study in the body the experience of craving. We study the experience of suffering. We can't let go. I can't let go. Because because I'm what's I'm what's craving. I'm the result of craving. Letting go happens. I don't let go. So one of the things that that um, one studies and, and learns about in somatics or in any kind of body body based work is um, kind of the behavior and and of contracted muscles of muscles and tissues that get contracted. And there's this thing that happens called sensory motor amnesia, where we lose the ability to feel something in the body. Muscles can become chronically contracted to the point where we actually don't even feel it anymore. We don't even feel it. How do you release a chronically contracted muscle that you can't even feel anymore? This is sort of what we're facing existentially in, ter- in, in, the, in the heart, is this chronically unconscious contraction, energetically, emotionally. That's just happening continually. This is, so, the, so the, way, the way to release a muscle that's chronically contracted is actually counterintuitive. If you can't feel it, sometimes, the response is to contract it harder. Yeah, someone who does body work's nodding. Because you can feel that, and once you feel that, then what happens? Try something with me right now. I want you to make a fist. Set it down on your, on your leg so that you're not holding your hand up, and really clamp it, really, really hold it. Hold it tight. Now let those muscles relax just on their own. You don't need to open the hand. Just let them relax. And now, very, very gently, ever so slightly, without even really moving the fingers, just just put the slightest bit of intention to open the fingers and just feel what happens in the muscles there. Can you feel that? You feel the resistance, right? Because the muscles are still held. Now just leave your hand there. Don't do anything with it. I'm going to talk a little bit more. Uh, so it's counterintuitive. When you contract it more, you can start to feel it. And then when you cease the voluntary contraction, what happens? You, you actually feel what it's like to let go a little bit. I think this is why the first noble truth is dukkha. Why the Buddha said, look here actually start to pay attention to the suffering. Feel it more. Why? Because when we feel it more, we start to, we start to actually notice how, how it lets go. We come to know the suffering of how we're doing it. 
Why am I feeling so awful? We have to actually feel the contraction, feel the, the tightness, the burning, to become fully conscious of it before it can release, before it can let go. So we allow the body to release these things. So come back to your hand now and just put a little bit more intention and see how the fingers feel. Maybe there's still, there's still resistance, right? So those of us who want to open up right away and as fast as possible, right? That's a little bit what's happening, I think. You just let it happen over time. You just trust it. Your muscles will relax. You'll be able to get a cup of tea later if you want. Don't worry. So to do this, to allow this letting go to happen, it requires this very quiet, steady, receptive attention to learn to just feel to just feel experience, to be with it directly. This is, a, this is another phrase that comes up in the suttas periodically. It blows my mind. So the Buddha says, he uses this phrase that one touches the deathless with the body. We touch the deathless with the body. In this fathom length body, is the world, the origin of the world, the end of the world, and the way leading to the end of the world. It's here. Relax, feel it. I'd like to end with a, with a poem that I started writing many, many years ago and just finished today. Sometimes things take time. It's called Trust. I trust what this body knows, breathing in, breathing out, the way home. I trust the ground which I can stand upon, the earth that rises to meet my feet and gives gently beneath my weight. And I trust that ground which I cannot stand upon, the falling away that everything returns to. I trust what this body knows, the pulsing and quivering, the tight, the hard, the smooth, rough and flowing. I trust the great oak and the white pine who do not question where the next branch will grow, who are tall and solid, gnarled and strong, who bend in the wind. I trust the sun that shines and warms the taut green skin and deep blue water of this earth, that sun toward which we all instinctively turn, which touches our billion faces alike, asking only the song of our sincere living in return. I trust what this body knows, breathing in, breathing out, the way home. I trust what this body knows, that the magnolias in spring take time to bloom, and that the leaves in autumn do not struggle to reach the ground, that we too are beautiful, brief, free. So let's let the words settle.
no need to hold on to anything. You can trust that what's whatever is useful will be there in your heart when you need it. Sit quietly together. Through resolutely working at it, one realizes ultimate truth with the body and discerns it by penetrative wisdom. We have some time for walking, and at nine o'clock there'll be some beautiful chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.